We're doing well. Thank you for, uh, for braving the cold. Uh, we were in uh, our CE class. Kevin Bedell is our teacher, and he uses his laptop as he teaches, and so we've got that hooked into the, the TV that's in the room. And uh, he's got some kind of weather app that's just always running on his computer. And so in the, in the bottom bar where all of the running apps are displayed, it has the temperature. Um, so it was one degree when we started, and then last I looked it was four. Um, so thank you for being here, braving the weather and the snow. Glad to be here with you. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Mark chapter 2. And uh, as we go, let me just give you a few thoughts, and we're going to read the passage, we're going to pray, and we're going to hop in. Um, but uh, this Sunday is 50 days from Easter, and some of you were here last week, and we talked about that. If that's news to you, then there you go. you got 50 days until Resurrection Sunday. Um, but what we are doing for these next 50 days, and what I'm encouraging you to do, is grab a resource called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And it is available for free in electronic versions. You could print a copy. You could use that on a, on a tablet or an e-reader. Um, it's on our website, and you'll find links there. Um, but some of you last week expressed interest in buying uh, a good old-fashioned paperback copy. And we ordered them off the internet, but they didn't come. So what we did was we printed we or days 1 through 7 for you. So if you're one of those that expressed interest in buying them, we ordered them. We're just waiting for Amazon to get them here. And we have, though, a printed copy for you that you can take with you when you leave. They're not in your boxes yet. They're still on the printer. So they literally will be hot off the presses. Um, but we will get those into your hands um, because we want that resource available for you. We don't want you to go a week without it. Uh, and you can come find me afterwards, and I'll have those. If this is news to you, if you've not heard this before, uh, waynesborochurch.org is our website, and you can find a link to uh, Desiring God's page on our Sermon Resources page. And you can get the book. You can download it in all sorts of ways. You can buy a, a copy yourself if you want. Um, lots of different avenues to do that. Um, but here's, here's why that and, and Mark kind of matters a little bit. Um, we're in week six of Mark right now, and I don't know if some of you have had that moment yet. Uh, I had it a few days ago, so it's all right if you've had it, but that moment where you're like, are we really going to be in Mark for this many weeks? It's like, what, what's ne-? So here's why this matters, and I think the book and the series kind of tie in together uh, in this way. Um, a couple weeks ago, I shared with you when we were in Mark 1 that one of the things that, that I think Mark wrote to his audience to communicate to them. And one of the things that I could even stand before you and say I, I struggle with at times is that, is that God is, is more of an idea to me than he is a person. And so if, if God is just simply an idea, that, that idea is only going to take you so far. I and mean, people will only go so far for an idea. You, you don't celebrate Valentine's Day with the idea of a special person. You more than likely celebrated that with that special person. So there's a huge difference between the idea of something and actually the person. And so if Christ is just an idea, if, if God is just an idea that we may have mentally assented to and, and, and given uh, credence to, but he's not actually the person that it's in him we move and have our being, 
then, then yeah, it, Mark's going to feel like it just kind of drags on for a long time. And 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die is going to be more of an intellectual exercise than it is going to be a spiritual one. But if he is a person, and we believe that he is a person, and I'll tell you that it's, it's, it's all right, and I share with you if you have those moments where you, you struggle more with the idea than the person, uh, then, then our time is well spent with a man who wrote for the very specific and purposeful reasons of communicating who Jesus is and what he came to do. There's no doubt in Mark's mind as he presents his gospel account that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived and walked and did what he said he did. And so for us, we're, we're, we may struggle with that. And you may be on, on a continuum where if you're more of a thinker, it's probably a little bit more of the idea. If it's more of the feeler, it's, it's probably not as much. But if, if we don't acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the person then we do feel like we're wasting our time a little bit, like there maybe should be better things for us to focus our attention on. And so as we continue going with Mark and in chapter 2, we're going to look at just kind of three different parts in these few verses. I believe it's 13 to 17. We're going to do a brief character sketch on Jesus, which will really be more of review as to where we have been. We're going to take just a quick peek at the crowd, and we're going to look at Levi, And uh, then we're going to look at Jesus' call to Levi, his response to that call, and then the opposition of the righteous. And so that's a bit of the roadmap of where we're going. But would you read the passage with me, and then we'll pray and go from there. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by... He saw, the son of, uh, the, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you pray with me? And we'll hop in. Father God, thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray for those that maybe their heat shut off this morning and their places are cold. Uh, God, we pray for those who are taking care of our city streets, those who are maintaining different, different aspects of, of, of gas and power and, and different just things that we may not even think of and take for granted because we just turn them on and they're there, but men and women are, are hard at work outside uh, right now working on these things. And so thank you for them. I pray that you'd give them wisdom and good skill in their work. God, for our time here in the next several minutes in your word. I, I pray that you would you'd come and do something that only you can do. God, it's only you that know where everybody is at in this room as they come in these doors, whether this has been a great week or whether this has been a devastating week. Lord, you know those details. And so God, I, I, I ask that you, as we look at your word, would come and, and do what only you can do. I pray that I would not get in your way. God, I pray that my words would be faithful and accurate to the very words that you have written. God, may we 
understand more of who Jesus is and understand more of your love for us and in turn love you. And it's in his good name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin, I want to I wanna just do a brief character sketch on, on the, really the three kind of principal crowds we see in the first couple verses of what Mark says. So we got Jesus, the crowd, and Levi. And so as Mark just leads off in verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and that he is Jesus. And so the Jesus that Mark has presented to us uh, has, has been, as we look across the first few chapters, has been several different things that describe him. And we're going to put that on the screen for you. Mark has said, Jesus is the Son of God. He said he's the one foretold of. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. And he's the authoritative and compassionate king. And so as the authoritative and compassionate king, Jesus came and preached with an authority never before heard. He called with an authority never before understood. He taught with an authority never before witnessed. He expressed authority over physical disease, authority over spiritual and demonic possession, authority over social norms and culture, and the authority to forgive sins. And for time reasons, I can't re-preach the last five weeks of sermons. So head over to our website. You can listen to them and catch up if any of those are new. But this is the man Mark has presented to us. And Mark's goal in his gospel account is to put before us very plainly and very clearly who Jesus is and what he came to do. And Mark is just chipping away at that cause. We're not even all the way through chapter 2. And here's the list of things that identify Jesus Christ as Son of God, as the authoritative and compassionate King. And Mark's going to just begin to identify Christ in this way for us. This is the Jesus that Mark writes of. This is the Jesus that the Scriptures describe. This is not an idea. This is a person who had the authority to reach down and grab Peter's mother-in-law's hand and heal her of her fever. And with compassion and the authority over physical disease and social norms, reached out and touched a leper and cleansed him. This is that man. But Mark also references another group of people that we're going to see more and more as we go. Verse 13, look there with me. He went out again beside the sea, that's Jesus, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. The second group I just want to paint a quick sketch for you of is the crowd. Now this is the second time Mark has used the word crowd in his gospel. He has referenced his large groups of people coming. He has referenced the, 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 the city coming, but here he's using the word crowd. And the word crowd is an important word, and the way we define it is an important word. And it begins to be a word throughout the rest of his book that is going to give some distinguishment to another group that will be very prominent as well, those being the disciples. And so a, a quick definition of the crowd would be a, a casual, non-membership group of people could be fairly large in size, and they're gathered for whatever purpose. So you think about this. Uh, every once in a while, Sam's Club offers like a free day 
that whether you have a membership or not, you can just come. And they're trying to bait you into buying a membership. So in that moment, there's members, and then there's probably what we could say would be the crowd. It's everybody who doesn't necessarily belong, but they're invited to come with hopes that they'll subscribe and come buy massive gallon jars of pickles and more toilet paper than maybe they'll ever use. We've bought one thing at Sam's Club before, and it was like an 18-pack of my favorite pens and a gallon jar of pickles. And we get up to the register, and I don't think we were members at this point. It was just that night. And and the lady kind of looks at us, and it was a Friday. We were in kind of the big city around us, and I go, it's going to be a crazy night. And we just, we just walked right through, just gave no explanation to that. And, but that, that's, the crowd is just this group of people that gathers. They kind of hang out. They're around, but they're, they're distinguished from the disciples. They're distinguished from that group. And Mark appears to distinguish and designate the crowd as those who were just kind of hanging out around Jesus. And then there was the disciples who were those committed to following him. The crowd is at the end of Mark's gospel account, actually the ones that he says were swayed by the religious rulers to chant crucify. And so this group that was hanging around, they're liking the healings, they're going to like being fed, all 5,000, some of them, they're, they're going to they're gonna be in. And at the end, they're going to be swayed and chant, crucify. But Jesus was teaching the crowd. And Mark gives us no record of what Jesus taught. Matthew and Luke may give us some inclinations that we could understand a little bit of what that content was. But as Mark has presented to us, the only thing so far that Mark has recorded Jesus taught or preached was the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so we're not given any instance or clue as of yet that his message has changed and it won't as well. Well, the third person, I should say, that we're going to just briefly sketch is Levi. Because in the midst of Jesus teaching the crowd, he now is going to do something that's pretty radical. Verse 14. And he passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed. And so this third character, this this third person to just briefly sketch would be Levi. Now, Levi is Matthew. Matthew's a gospel writer. He's the one who wrote the book to the left of the book of Mark. And he, in chapter 9 of his own gospel account, records what happened when Jesus came. And, and so Matthew himself says, I was sitting at the tax booth, and he came, and he said, follow me. And I got up, and I followed. But let's think a little bit about what Matthew was, or who Matthew was, as a tax collector. Because he was not a guy working for the IRS that was just waiting for our electronic submissions of our tax forms before April 15th. He wasn't the guy opening the mail in in Washington, beginning to check stuff in. He, as a tax collector, was actually hated and despised in this this culture. He was hated and despised. He would have collected a variety of taxes. They could have been business license taxes. They could have been toll fees. They could have been import tariffs. Uh, the, The scene really is the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus' ministry is focused right now. Matthew having a, a tax booth 
where he, as, as people would either come into the, the region and, and, and buy or sell goods, or guys like Peter and Andrew and James and John would bring their fish off the boat and go take it to the market, they'd have to pass by Levi or one of his fellow tax collectors. And what Levi and these other tax collectors were able to do as they collected taxes for Herod Antipas and the Roman government is they were able to charge whatever they wanted for these taxes. The Roman government and the Jewish government at that time may have just said, we want, we want 25 cents of every dollar, or we want 25 cents for every fish. And so it, there's 50 cents that needs to be collected. Well, Levi had the authority of the Jewish rulers and the Roman government, and that Roman government authority was backed up by military force that would have occupied this area that whatever Levi decided to charge was what you had to pay regardless of what anybody else above his, say, above his head said was needed. So 25 cents to the Romans, 25 cents to the Jews, he could have charged a dollar and pocketed 50 cents. And these men, these tax collectors, were known for just fleecing their fellow countrymen. And so they were not well-liked people at all. They were hated. They were despised. Uh, One scholar writes this in regards to them. A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or a witness in court. They were just considered dishonest men. Not going to take their testimony. They were expelled from the synagogue. They were literally kicked out of the religious system of that day. They were a disgrace to their family, so their family would have more than likely abandoned them. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors, since revenues from taxes were deemed to be robbery. So the poor, who would have sat somewhere, sometimes it was by the temple gate, it would be other places, alms for the poor, they would have been asking for a handout, they weren't allowed to receive money from tax collectors, because that money was to have been deemed stolen. The Jewish contempt of tax collectors was epitomized in the ruling that Jews could lie to tax collectors without impunity. So let's just think about that one for a minute, because that's just, frankly, outstanding, because the people that would have given that ruling were the people that would have built their whole lives around building fences of obedience so that they would never disobey one of the Ten Commandments. And so one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not lie. So they would have built these fences. Well, if you shouldn't lie, then you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this. And it just get wider and wider because you don't want to lie. Well, that group of people told their countrymen, you can lie to those dudes. You can break God's law because those dudes are bad dudes. I mean, that's, that's the level of contempt that Levi lived with, that Matthew lived with. He was not a well-liked man. And you think about the team that Jesus is putting together at this point. Who do we have specifically mentioned so far in Mark that Jesus has called? He's called Simon or Peter. He's called Andrew. Those are brothers. He's called James and he's called John. Those are brothers. Two pairs of brothers. He called both of them while they were fishing. These men would have had to pass by Levi or one of his friends and paid tax on the very catch that they had brought in and taken to market. And this is the team Jesus is putting together. 
He takes four fishermen and a guy that made his livelihood ripping them off on the same team, and he's going to go, we're going to change the world. It's just unheard of. It's just unheard of what Jesus is doing. But Jesus comes and he calls Levi. And he calls Levi in the same way that he called James and John. He calls Levi in the same way that he called Peter and Andrew. And we see the exact same response that Levi gives, that those men gave. And the call was, follow me. And the response was, Levi got up and he followed. Luke records that he got up, he left everything, and he followed. Matthew, recording about himself, records, I got up, and I immediately followed. So there was something in the call of Jesus that created this response in Levi, and we're going to see this response is actually twofold, because Levi just didn't follow, he then began to go make other followers. And we've been trying to clarify for you over the past several weeks what we believe the mission that God has given the church as a whole, but how that is uniquely expressed here as well. And we've just described it as our missions to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. And I would submit to you that Levi is an incredible example of a man who did just that. He became a disciple, he got up, he followed, but then we're going to see the other part of his response, and that was making disciples. So go with me to verse 15, and we're going to see this break down a little bit further. And as he reclined at table in his house, so as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Mark now is going to give us this scene. They're in Levi's house. Jesus And the five disciples are there, and a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners, because Mark records for us that there were many tax collectors and sinners who followed him. So something happened, and we don't have really the the time markings and what Mark presents to us, but something happened between the call of Levi and him then going out and telling all of his friends to come. And all of his friends coming... And then them sitting down for a meal. And the pictures that are on the screen, Joe, go to the other one first, is a picture of what this meal would have looked like. The meal is actually described with a word that I'm not sure I can pronounce, uh, but it starts with the, the letters T-R-I, so it's a, it's a tri-meal because there's three sides to the table. And you have on the inside mats, on the outside you also have mats and some cushions against the wall. But what would be done in this culture, and I got these pictures from a buddy of mine who was in Jerusalem uh, a few years ago and participated in a meal like this, is they would lean down on their left side and, and prop themselves up on their left arm, and then they would use their right hand to extend to the table and take the food and put it into their mouth, and, and the, the, get, or the host would sit in the very center of the U-shape And then the guest of honor would sit really to his immediate right and his immediate left, and he would serve them, and that would be really how this meal would happen. And and so everybody's just kind of packed in there. 
And there's good historical accounts for us to understand that when Jesus had his last supper with his disciples, it was a meal just like this. And you actually have, I believe, one of the disciples saying that he was leaning against Jesus. I mean, these guys were close. You got someone's head on someone's shoulder because they're just, they're all kind of leaning there. And we kind of think it's weird because we don't have our chairs and our tables that sit 23 and a quarter inches high. And, and we, we kind of look at this and go, that's, that's strange and that's all right. That's this, this table. So when he reclines at table, this is that scene. And Joe can go to the next one. And we see what this might have looked like where somebody's feet would be extended back and they'd be leaning on their left side and eating with their right hand. Uh, my buddy said this is actually a toga party they did. He was studying archaeology from the Old Testament and, and his advice to me at the end of his email was like, you should do this with the youth group because kids love toga parties. I'm like, okay, well think about it. Uh, but this is that scene. This is that meal. And here's Jesus, son of God, fully God, fully man, the authoritative, the compassionate king. Here's Levi, the one who just however many hours or, or, or days before had been making his livelihood, ripping off his fellow countrymen and then all of his friends. Because if you're expelled from the synagogue, if you're a disgrace to your family, if you have made your livelihood ripping off everybody else in your town and in your country, you're not going to have a lot of people looking to hang out with you. And so the people that were with Levi were other people of the same ill repute. And Mark records for us that there were many tax collectors and sinners reclining with Jesus. And there were many of them that followed him. So Levi is an incredible example of a disciple-making disciple. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, that it's the love of Christ that compels us to go and share the love of Christ. And I think you have in the man and the call and the response of Levi an example of that very thing. He understood what the, the call of Jesus meant. And I think as well as we look at Levi, we can also see that, that being a disciple-making disciple isn't rocket science. It's often as easily expressed as, I follow the Lord, you come and follow me. And I think that's exactly what we see Levi doing. He gets up and he follows, and then he goes and he invites all of his friends, and he throws a great banquet. And you wonder, why is he throwing a banquet? I I think he's probably celebrating salvation. I think he's celebrating the, the drastic change that now has come to himself and others that would have been of like kind. And so you have all these tax collectors. You have all of these sinners. The New Testament uses the word sinners to describe people that not just do wrong things, but actually set their face towards and with the purpose of doing wrong things. So it's not just the, the person who has to go and make a sacrifice because they, they did something they shouldn't. It's somebody whose whole life is aimed at and in the direction of doing things that do not honor the Lord. And so some of those things would have obviously included the thieves, the murderers, the adulterers. I mean, these are the people that Levi knew. These are the only friends that he had. 
And these are the people that he said, uh, yeah, uh, Jesus just changed my life. You come and he's going to do the same for you. But then we have the opposition of the righteous. And so in verse 16, Mark records for us, and the scribes of the Pharisees, or that could be, and the scribes and the Pharisees, perhaps two groups, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Now, Mark is very clearly pointing out for us who Jesus was with. In two verses, he uses three times the phrase sinners and tax collectors. There is no doubt in his mind that he wants us to very clearly understand the crowd that Jesus is with, and the Pharisees and the scribes come, and they've got business with what Jesus is doing. So they see that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And they question, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now for us to fully perhaps feel the weight of the question and the weight of the disdain and the hatred that this group of people asking the question had for tax collectors and sinners, I think we got to go to Luke chapter 18. So go to Luke 18 with me real quick. It's a parable that Jesus told, and it's a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And we're going to see some things revealed in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, that begin to identify and perhaps articulate for us the heart and the attitude and even the hatred that Pharisees had towards tax collectors, but also the heart and the attitude that these Pharisees had before the Lord. So go to verse 9 with me. He also told, this is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So before we even get to the parable, we've got the battle lines drawn. Jesus has very clearly identified who the players are. The Pharisees are those who trust in themselves to be justified before God, and the others are those that they treated with contempt. Think hatred. Think bullying, think persecution, you think whatever we can. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see a little bit of the heart. A little bit of the attitude. Jesus himself says here that, that the Pharisees were those that trusted in themselves for their justification. And they treated others with contempt. And so they come and they see Jesus dining with people that they treated with contempt. And they're trusting in their own self-righteousness for their relationship with the Lord. Well, they got big business with the Son of God. So they begin to challenge and begin to question. Now, what's fascinating 
is the Pharisees rightly identify the group of people that Jesus is with. They identify the group of people that Jesus is with as tax collectors and sinners. Mark himself twice, or I believe just once, writes that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Mark's writing for the purpose of saying that these men got saved, these women got saved. The Pharisees are correctly identifying the crowd that Jesus is with. But their heart had zero compassion. And in their correct identification of Jesus' company, they failed to correctly identify, though, the need that these people had, the need that they had. And so rather than rejoicing that Jesus had come to bring the kingdom to forgive sins, they opposed the king doing his work. And so I I think there's perhaps just this question now that we need to ask and wrestle with ourselves is, are, are there people in our lives that need the Lord, but we refuse to do anything, or we may even actively oppose Jesus doing anything in their lives because we've identified them as something and have said they're not capable of God doing his work. See, allegiance to the Pharisees' system took precedence over everything. And they were unable, maybe they were unwilling to see that the very people that God came to do business with, he was doing business with. But are there people in our lives that we may just refuse to go and share the gospel to? We may, we may refuse to, to be kind to. We may treat with contempt because somehow we've deemed them to be something. We've labeled them as something. And that label now has, has put a scarlet letter on them that basically just says, stay away, back off, don't come near. Well, some of those could be drug addicts, could be alcoholics. Some of those could be homosexuals. Some of those could be adulterers or those living unmarried together. Some of those could be that shady guy at work. It could be the person spending all of their time and money gambling and drinking. It could be the person who maybe is just a good person but just says, I want nothing to do with the Lord. You stay away with the gospel. You just you keep me away from it. If that's good for you, good. I want nothing to do with it. It could be that person. It could be a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. I mean, we've got people around us that need help. But what we can do is we can put these labels on people. And, and maybe those labels perhaps are for, for our comfort. Perhaps they're, they're bred out of contempt. And we label people and we basically just put a big stay away sign on them. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did. They labeled these people. They, they labeled them correctly. These people were tax collectors and sinners. But they had a big stay away sign on them. And they wanted to then, and they did actively oppose Jesus coming and bringing to them the very thing that those people needed. Jesus' call of Levi and the following of many tax collectors and sinners demonstrates that no one is too far gone. 
No one is too far gone. Every one of these individuals that Jesus was with had been thought to have crossed some imaginable line and chasm that said they're too far. And I, I, get, I get choked up about this because that was my grandma. And I, I've shared this before with you, and it just seems appropriate again. Eight days before she died, struggling on her deathbed, hospice is there, just pain management, almost incoherent. Somebody believed that my grandma wasn't too far gone. And they sat down, and maybe for the hundredth time, my grandma heard the gospel. And she responded. It was because somebody didn't put some sign on her, didn't label her as a woman who had spent all of her life in opposition to the gospel, all of her life rejecting the gospel. They said, no, she's worth it enough to go give it to her again. We cannot be like these Pharisees. We cannot be like these men that label people and then just stay away from them. And I get so frustrated with, with the Christian subculture that seems to have been built around that encourages this. And so there's an organization this coming April that if you subscribe to their email list, is going to tell you to stay away. And the organization is the American Family Association, AFA. And in April, what there is going to be in high schools and middle schools all across this country is what's called the Day of Silence. And the Day of Silence is a day where those who may be uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, or those who have friends that have been, will pledge a silent vow that day and have a silent protest in their schools. They may wear tape over their mouth, they may just choose not to speak, but it's a day of silence organized to bring awareness to bullying for gay, lesbian, transgender, and bisexual people. Well, the American Family Association is going to tell you, come that week in April, don't send your kids to school. And I get so mad at it. And we actually, in Indiana, when I was in, in student ministry, we just began actively opposing the AFA with the, the people that the Lord gave us. I didn't go on some kind of worldwide campaign. I just took the people that I was to shepherd, and I said, that's ridiculous. No, you don't stay away from school that day. You go. You go and you wear your youth group t-shirt. And you go, and parents, you better send your kids, because that day, maybe unlike any other day, you're going to know who's carrying some hurt. You're going to know who perhaps has been bullied. You're going to know who perhaps is struggling with things that they don't even know what to do with, and they've been the recipients of mocking and shame and scorn and contempt. And that could be from Christians, it could be from non-Christians, said, you guys, you go. You better not stay home. And we gave all of them a card that just simply said, hey, we know you're not going to talk to us today, but we're sorry if you've been the recipient of bullying. We're sorry if you've been mocked. We're sorry if you've been made fun of. 
And if any Christian has done that, we're, we're even more sorry because that does not fit with the name of Jesus. That is unbecoming to the, to, to the designation and characteristics of a follower. He said, they're not going to respond to you because they've pledged a vow of silence. So it'll be a very quick conversation. But you go and you give them this card. And then you pray. And you ask the Lord to take that card and your maybe kind words, and you ask them to do something. And so probably three or four years in a row, we tried to just send our students to, to school with grace, with compassion with mercy, with, with confession, and even with the, the request of forgiveness. Because unfortunately, religious people can often be the ones who look on others with contempt most quickly. So I'm under no false pretenses thinking that a whole bunch of Christians in Warsaw, Indiana made life miserable for a whole bunch of people in Warsaw, Indiana. And that's just shameful. There's a difference between taking a stand for what we believe is right and bullying and mocking and treating with contempt. It's a huge difference. No matter how many years someone has spent their life running from God, no matter how opposed they are to the things of God, no matter what life and lifestyle choices they make, no matter how sinful a person may be, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves. He saves, and he tells us who he came to save. Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to sinners. When Jesus is using the word righteous, he's using it to describe somebody who is trusting in themselves for their own righteousness. So think back to Luke 18. And he told a story about some that were trusting in themselves and others they treated with contempt. The Pharisees would be considered then the righteous or the well And Jesus is using irony here to describe their mindset and their thinking. And he's using then the sick and the sinners to describe those he was dining with. This is is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus, time after time after time, is going to show and demonstrate compassion and grace and mercy to the people that just know they desperately need him. And he is time and time and time again going to reserve his strongest words of condemnation for this group of individuals that were religious and trusting in themselves for their relationship with the Lord. And so Jesus sits down to a meal with tax collectors and with sinners. And he does so amidst the opposition of the religious ruling elite. And he gives for us an example of the grace and compassion that he has not only demonstrated in our lives, 
but those very same things that we are to go and demonstrate to others. So here's how I want us to wrap up this morning. I'm going to just give you a little space, a couple minutes. I'm going to give you a little, little space, a little time. And, and I, I want you to think about a couple different things. One is, you, you may be that religious person. You may be treating others with contempt. You may have labeled somebody and just decided, I'm, I'm staying away. Well, I, I think we need to spend some time in confession for those things. Because those things are not God-honoring things. Those things are not Christ-exalting things. Those things are not after the, the, the example that Jesus left us. And we can wisely dine with people that don't know and love the Lord. You can do it. It's not Christ-exalting to just simply correctly identify people as sinful. So I think there's some confession that may need to take place. Because you, you may just be that one. It may be in your heart. It may be something you've said. It, it, at whatever level it is, you need to do business with the Lord about it. But then I want us to pray for people that we know who need Christ. Family, co-workers, neighbors. Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves And if a tax collector and a whole bunch of sinners aren't too far gone, the point stands today, no one is ever too far gone. So we pray. We pray that the Lord would save. And then we pray for boldness to speak. God could save them without us speaking. For some reason, he's chosen to have us speak. So we speak, and we pray for boldness to speak. Pray for boldness to go have that conversation. And, and it, if, you've, if you need to go and apologize to that individual, that conversation's probably not initially getting wrapped up and packaged with a gospel presentation in it. There's probably some groundwork you've got to lay down before you get there. It's going to start and needs to include an apology for, hey, I, I've treated you like crap. And that's not right. And I've had to make those apologies before for how I've treated people. So if if we need to spend some time and do some business with the Lord, asking him to forgive our our hearts, our contempt-filled hearts, then we need to. Let's pray for those that we know that need the Lord and pray that he would give us boldness to go and have that conversation with them. So I just want to give you some quiet, some space. In a couple minutes, the band will play. We'll close with a couple songs. And so as Danny gives us further instruction, he'll wrap up our time and then lead us in music. But let's just spend some time in some stillness and some quiet and spend it with the Lord.